Hello and greetings. We're very glad that you have an interest in spiritual matters, and we're glad that you've joined us today. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ, where disciples making disciples, on the west side of Los Angeles. Today we'd like to begin talking about an interesting period in, in biblical history, the beginning of the Second Temple period. And the Second Temple period goes from about the year 530 before Jesus to 70 of our current era. It's also known as a post-exilic period. A lot of times when we talk about this period of time, we subdivide it based upon the empires of the world that are ruling. So the Persian Empire uh, goes from about 538 to 334 before Jesus. To, uh, then two Greek empires, the Ptolemies, from 334 to 200. And then Seleucids from 200 to 167. Then there was the Maccabean Revolt. And so the Hasmonean native Jewish uh, group rules from 167 to 63 before Jesus. And then the Romans rule from 63 uh, before Jesus and well, after 70, uh, after Jesus, but the temple is destroyed in the year 70, and thus ends the second temple period of history. It's a very challenging time in Jewish history. At the beginning of it, the people are re still recovering from the fallout of the political, social, economic, religious apocalypse uh, wrought by the Babylonian destruction of 586. Uh, for a group of people whose belief in God is, is in many ways based on, well, his, his people is Israel, his city is Jerusalem, uh, for them to see the city destroyed, the temple destroyed, and being exiled uh, was a very strong crisis. It, it, did God abandon us? Why did this happen to us? Uh, is Yahweh stronger than Marduk? Uh, questions like that in light of such a terrible thing. Uh, when they returned to their land, there was no Davidic king on the throne, and their land did not belong to them. Yes, they lived in the land of Israel. Yes, they would grow crops on it, but they were constantly reminded that they were being ruled over by a foreign, pagan, and sometimes oppressive uh, ruler from afar. Some of them lived in that land. Some of them still lived in other lands, like in Babylon or in other places. How is Yahweh still Lord? How could Jews live faithfully in these conditions? Toward the beginning of this period, in, in the days of the Babylonians and in the days of the Persians, God still inspired prophets and instructors to provide Israel with guidance about what was going to happen and how they could continue to serve him until the Messiah came. And there's a lot of things we can gain in value in considering the character of these people uh, to see how Yahweh worked to deliver his people and to instruct them uh, throughout at this time. And we're going to begin with the prophet Daniel. We learn a lot about Daniel from the book that bears his name, uh, especially the first uh, six chapters. Now, there are apocryphal stories about Daniel and his wisdom that were added on to Daniel in some texts, and that's been preserved for us in the Greek Septuagint, uh, known as Susanna and Bell and the Dragon, which is Daniel 13 and 14 in Septuagint Apocrypha. And those are stories talking about Daniel and his wisdom and how he helped take care of difficulties and challenges and also over, uh, was responsible for the overthrow of uh, certain pagan gods. He's mentioned in other apocryphal texts in terms of what he saw and did in his life. Uh, in 1st Maccabees, 3rd and 4th Maccabees, and 2nd Esdras. Uh, Jesus mentions him in Matthew 24, 15. So we see from all this that Daniel becomes is a very important character. Yes, he does all these things in the days of Babylonians and Persians, uh, but then 
the Jews will continue to make reference to him and his faithfulness and the things which he saw that God grant him to see at the end of the book in Daniel 7 through 12. So what we can tell from the text, in Daniel chapter 1, 1 through 3, we, we learn that Daniel is born in Judah. He's probably from Jerusalem itself. He's the son of royalty or nobility at least. He is ba- exiled to Babylon as a youth and as an exile in the days of Jehoiakim, around year 605. So when Daniel leaves, yes, Judah is grappling with Babylon as a foreign power, but the temple is still standing. There is still a Davidic king on the throne. Uh, it's still before this exilic period. We learn... In beginning in chapter 1 and, and through chapter 4, the, the, the interactions that Daniel has with Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, he reigned from about 605 to about 562. And we begin in chapter 1, he wants these Jews of Israel to be brought up in the wisdom of the Babylonians. He's looking to have the nobility uh, become his diplomats, become possibly even uh, re, you know, people who rule on his behalf in these areas, and so on and so forth. And so Daniel, whose name means God is my judge, is renamed Belteshazzar, which means Bel protects his life in Daniel 1, 3 through 7. Uh, but we see from the beginning his type of character and his type of resistance. He and his companions resolved that they would not defile themselves with the king's dainty foods or his wine. And so they asked instead to be given a diet of vegetables and water. And that very more likely because the food was unclean. It had, uh, perhaps it was just because it wasn't of sufficient nutrition. Uh, but whatever it was, Daniel was very insistent on having this very strong line. And because of it, he and his associates prospered physically. And they gained all of this wisdom of the Babylonians. Uh, and it's really from God. God gives him the ability to maintain insight and wisdom. And God uh, communicates with him. Uh, and he gets more glory than all the wise men and magicians of the land. Before Nebuchadnezzar, when he's brought in in chapters 2 and 4 to speak with Nebuchadnezzar, he honors the God of heaven. He doesn't claim he's got the power in himself. It's the God of heaven who is going to make these things known. And he makes known dreams and their meaning, and he exhorts the king to humility. He is very bold in the name of the God of heaven when he's before Nebuchadnezzar to warn him about the, the dangers of his behavior and attitude and things of that nature. Because of this, he is elevated to a high position as ruler of the province of Babylon, and he stands in the king's gate, so to speak, in Daniel two forty-eight and 49. So he uh, is an Israelite. He is in exile, but he tries to stand before the king in such a way as to glorify the God of heaven and to uh, encourage the king to do what is right. And that's an important thing to see. And it's not just in the days of, Dan- in, of Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter 5 of Daniel, we are introduced to the involvement that Daniel has with, king, with Belshazzar in the year 538. Uh, Belshazzar sees writing on the wall. And we're in Daniel five ten through twelve, the queen mother has to come and remind him that in the days of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar would summon Daniel, called Belteshazzar, that he had a spirit of the God, holy gods in him, and that he was wise and had understanding. And so he comes in, and uh, he there's this great 
uh, reward that is offered to the one who tells the king these things. He doesn't want the reward. He says, let, let, you can keep your reward, but he will interpret it for the king. And so he provides the interpretation of the writing on the wall, and in so doing, is really indicting the king. It speaks truth to power, that you know, he's used these holy vessels from the temple of Yahweh, that Yahweh has judged him, and that, in fact, uh, the kingdom is going to be taken from him and given to another, and very, that very night, in fact. Uh, we're told that the Persians overran uh, the city of Babylon, and the Babylonian Empire came to an end. And so in chapter 6, we see uh, Daniel before Darius, perhaps in you know, 538-535 in chapter 6. Uh, when Darius, who is maybe the, the Mede, if he's the Mede, he is uh, uh, some kind of legate for Cyrus, uh, or if it's the Persian, it's uh, Cyrus's grandson or a relative of Cyrus. Uh, who is making Daniel one of three overseers of the satraps. And so that means he is one of the three people right underneath the, the, rule, the rule of the king. Uh, in fact, uh, the, Darius is thinking about making him just the overseer of everybody, that he would be literally the second-hand man of the Persian Empire. Uh, and it's noted in the text in chapter 6, 1-4, through 4, that nothing bad could be said of him because of his integrity. That you could, that no charges would stick. In fact, the Persian compatriots who are jealous of him conspire against him in terms of the law of his God. They, they understand that his only weakness, if you can call it a weakness, is his devotion to uh, God. And so they get the king to make it illegal to pray to anyone but Darius for 30 days. And, and Darius, not really expecting malice or not seeing through this, uh, complies, we're told. And Daniel finds out about it. And when Daniel finds out about it, he doesn't change his conduct. He, he goes to his house in chapter 6 and verse 10. Uh, he got down his knees three times a day and prayed toward Jerusalem, gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. And of course they had found him doing that. They brought accusation to the king. The king mourns because he sees what this has all been about. Uh, but the, even the king has confidence that the God of Daniel should be able to rescue da uh, Daniel from the consequence of the lion's den. So Daniel goes in the lion's den. He is preserved. The king is elated. And of course those who conspired against him were thrown into the lion's den and they did not meet the same fate. And what's interesting is that at the end of the chapter, 25 through 28, Darius makes a decree about the throughout the empire and says that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble in fear before the God of Daniel, for he is a living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues, he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions... So this is something else we saw in Nebuchadnezzar, that they, they, these kings will make these decrees and will declare that you do not speak evil of the God of heaven, the God of Daniel, uh, and if you say anything against them, you're going to, uh, in chapter 3 with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, a related story of Daniel's companions, uh, they will, anybody who speaks evil about them will be torn limb to limb and their houses will lay it in ruins, for there's no other God who rescues in that way in verse 29 of chapter 3. So we see that through the faith of these men, uh, their devotion to God, even in, in positions of power, even while serving the king, uh, not yielding to the paganism around them, standing firm for God, God rescued them, God delivered them, God proved his power through them, to the point where these pagan emperors are forcing everybody around the world to honor the God of Daniel, honor Yahweh, if you speak evil of him, bad things are going to happen to you because of what he is able to do.
Around this same time in chapter 9, Daniel understands that the 70-year period of exile shall be over, and so he then prays a very uh, penitential prayer to God for him and for his people, that they may be able to go back and, 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 and asking for forgiveness for all these terrible things their fathers had done, and that they had done. Uh, and it's a very touching illustration of Daniel's faith. When it comes to when he died, we're not really sure, because again, who is this Darius we're talking about? If it's the Mede uh, that we're talking about that was involved at the very end of the Babylonian Empire, that means he's last heard of in the third year of Cyrus, in at the end of chapters uh, 6 and in 9 and other places, uh, which means that's around 535. So uh, he meant he probably would have died between there and the end of Cyrus's reign in 530. And so we don't know when he was born either. We know he's a youngish man when he's taken in exile in the year 609. So that means he has lived no fewer than 70 years. So he has a very long life, even in the shortest term way of looking at it. Now, if Darius of Daniel 9.1 is Darius the Great, the emperor uh, then we last hear of Daniel as he begins his reign around 522. So if he didn't live much longer in that period, he would have lived no fewer than 85 years. And so that's the life of Daniel and his character displayed in, in these texts. Now it's interesting, of course, we can make a lot of lessons, and we're going to try to make some lessons about Daniel's life for Second Temple Jews and for Christians as well. What's interesting, though, is we're talking about him in terms of the Second Temple period even though most of his life took place during the exile, which is from 586 to 538. In fact, he, he is even pre-exilic in the sense that he was born and would probably have some memory of Jerusalem before it was destroyed, in the years, you know, back when he lived there, uh, 609, 608-5 and before. But the reason that we talk about him in terms of the Second Temple is that his example and, his, and what God showed him overshadows the entire Second Temple period because of these dreams and visions that he saw. The, that dream that he interprets of Nebuchadnezzar and a dream and vision that God gives him, a couple of them in Daniel 7 and 8, Daniel is shown what is going to happen. That Babylon was going to reign for a time, uh, represented by a gold head or a lion with eagle's wings. Then after Babylon would come the Medes and the Persians, which was the silver chest, a bear, or a ram with two horns in, in these various passages in Daniel 2, 7, and 8. When Persia would fall, the Macedonian empires of Ptolemy and Seleucus would reign. And they're the bronze belly of the statue, or the leopard with wings and the he-goat in, in, in 7 and 8. And after the Macedonians, the Romans were the iron, the iron mixed with clay, and the terrible fourth beast would arrive in Daniel 2 and in 7. And Daniel then is given a glimpse of God's great intervention in these days of the last empire. The establishment of the kingdom of God. The stone in Daniel 2 that shatters all power and rule and the statue uh, that was seen. And that the everlasting dominion will be given by the Ancient of Days to the one like a son of man in chapter 7. And so... Daniel is given this vision that he then communicates to Israel that literally sets the stage for the rest of the Second Temple period. Everything else in the Second Temple period, even Jesus, even the destruction of the Temple, is included in that wide scope. And it's not even just that wide scope, because in Daniel 9, verse 20, through the end of the book, uh, there's a focus on the fate of of Israel. That after Daniel got on his knees and prayed that penitential prayer, uh, asking God to forgive his people, uh, he is 
approached by the angel and sh- and told what would happen. Uh, the 70 weeks decry- decreed for uh, the city and the temple. And, and going on from that, he sees a vision of Michael standing against the king of Persia and the king of Greece. And then he's granted wisdom to set forth to Darius to meet the future of Israel. And, and he it describes at length the, the Persian rule, and after that the Macedonian invasion, and then the conflict between the Ptolemies, the king of the south, and the Seleucids, the king of the north. And it reaches this climax with Antiochus IV Epiphanes, the one who would persecute the Jews and would... Uh, defile the temple and would be the, a strong existential threat to Judaism. Daniel then learns of the resurrection to come for both the righteous and the wicked in the time which all these things would take place in the final chapter. So yes, Daniel technically is an example of the exilic period. If he lives in the post-exilic period, it's not for a very long time during his life. But you it's hard to overstate his exam, his influence on post-exilic Second Temple Judaism. As we've seen, the Jews have taken great encouragement from his stories. That's why you have these additional stories appended in Daniel 13 and 14. That's why he keeps getting mentioned in these other apocryphal works. That Second Temple Jews, including Jesus, understand current events and signs in terms of what Daniel had foretold about Jerusalem and the people of God. And we see this in Second Esther 12:11 and Matthew 24:15 that Jesus defines himself in terms of the Son of Man and the kingdom that God grants him. Matthew 26, 64, uh, he makes reference to this expectation in Daniel 7, 13, the one like a Son of Man receiving a kingdom. And that through the revelations given him, Daniel makes known to Israel what Yahweh is doing. That God is still faithful in Amos 3, 8, that he lets know what's going to happen through his service of prophets. Daniel is that prophet telling the Israelites what was going to happen that even in the days when no prophet was in the land, they could know through the prophetic word having been given to Daniel. And that will prove very important throughout this period of the Second Temple. So, what do we see here with Daniel? He's a model for faithful service of God in the midst of pagans. He doesn't advocate withdrawal. He doesn't presume to be superior to the ruler he serves the people around him. He serves the pagan empire which overthrew Judah as Davidic king. He is learning Babylonian wisdom while Nebuchadnezzar is destroying his beloved city. And he doesn't terrorize, he, do, he, he doesn't act all high and mighty. He serves God, he serves the emperor... He tries to use the wisdom God gives him to the best of his ability, and he tries to be a force for good for his people, but also for the welfare of the empire and all involved. Yet, he will not compromise himself. Yes, he is engaged in this world. He serves a pagan ruler, but he won't eat his food. That will cause him to be defiled. He will not pray to any other god or the emperor. His associates in chapter 3 will not bow down to the statue that Nebuchadnezzar makes. He has opportunities to speak to power. He speaks to kings. He does so in the name of the God of heaven. In he's speaking, he glorifies the God of heaven. He speaks truth through the God of heaven, even when that truth is extremely uncomfortable. And he gains favor because he is humble, because he maintains his integrity, and because he has wisdom that he has received from God. And even though Daniel might seem very remote in time, he actually has a lot of lessons that he can teach us as Christians today. 
In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul wrote, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. So, right there, Paul shows that God has not called us to withdraw from the world and the worldly people doing sinful things, but in fact to maintain association with them. In Romans 3 and verse 23, we're told that all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. We have no right to presume ourselves to be superior to our ruler, to the people around us. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul encourages the slaves to recognize that they are to remain in the position in which they are called. Uh, same also with the freedmen and other people. We are to serve God in whatever conditions we are found when we are called by him. So we are to serve God wherever we are in whatever context we find ourselves. And yet, Acts 5.29, Paul Peter says we, we must obey God rather than men. Romans chapter 12, especially verse 2, that we are not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. And, and Peter speaks directly to this in 1 Peter 4, 3-5. through 5. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So we're not to compromise our faith, our integrity, our behavior in order to be acceptable to the Gentiles, to the pagans. But we must uphold the standard of God in Christ, even if it means that we are persecuted or killed for it. And in Matthew 5, 13, and 16, that we are the salt of the earth, the light of the world. And in 1 Peter 2, 11 through 17, that Christians are to honor the emperor, that you are to be subject to every ordinance of man, so that when they revile you as evildoers, uh, they will glorify God because of the deeds you've done of the visitation. That the people of God will gain favor even among pagans and, and sinners if they maintain humility, wisdom, and integrity in their behavior. In a lot of ways, we, we look at Daniel at a very different time and place, but that time and place is not as different as we'd like to imagine. We are living at a time and a place where it seems that paganism and, and, and unbelief and, and, and different standards of morality tend to exist, and there is a, a temptation to withdraw, a temptation uh, to act smug and superior, and, and, and yet Daniel did none of these things. Uh, Daniel was seeing visions and signs. Uh, there will be a time when that wasn't going to happen anymore, but his message was able to sustain and, 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 and nourish the faith of people uh, with the expectation that, yes, you can serve God in a foreign land. Yes, you can serve God even in the halls of the pagan emperor. Yes, you can maintain your integrity and righteousness even in what seem to be compromised circumstances. But you must maintain that conviction. You must maintain that humility uh, to serve God even in the midst of those circumstances. And therefore, we do well to consider Daniel's example. Because yes, the second temple period is a very difficult time for Israel. And Daniel helps show the way forward. He served the God of heaven faithfully, but didn't compromise his faith. The dreams and visions Daniel saw interpretive gave Israel insight into what would happen after that. And we can take from that that we can serve God no matter what may happen with our government, 
we can continue to maintain our integrity and faith and, and to seek to uh, point others to the God of heaven, uh, speak truth to power even in the name of the God of heaven, uh, and not withdraw, but be that light to be the salt of the earth and glorify the Lord Jesus whom Daniel saw as the one like a son of man receiving the everlasting dominion from the ancient of days, always knowing that whatever rulers here on earth are doing, that Jesus is still Lord and that every knee will bow before him. So we're again so glad that you've joined us today. If you have any questions or comments about anything that we've discussed, if you'd like to talk further about it, maybe you have questions or comments about other issues, maybe you just want to talk or have a prayer request, let me know. Please contact me through my website, deverbovitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. And if you'd like to learn more about the church in Venice, please find us online at venicechurchofchrist.org. Uh, we're also on many forms of social media, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, things like that, Venice Church or Venice Church of Christ. We again thank you. Have a great day.